The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. There's a lot going on in our world right now. I mean, you know, censorship is happening like we could never have imagined in this country. I mean, if you don't agree with the left, and that's basically what it is, if you just don't agree with the left, then you're censored. Because the left owns everything. They have all the media, the social media. You know, the First Amendment is literally being trampled and destroyed. Because the government is working with the social media companies and the media to just destroy our First Amendment. When people who were blocked and being censored on social media, they decided to create and move to a new platform. Parlor. And I moved to Parlor. A lot of people on Parlor. Guess what? Amazon owns the servers that Parlor was on. So Amazon shut them down. You know, with all the censorship that's happening right now and the mask wearing, I often feel like I'm in China. You know, that, that's what it seems like. We've become a communist country. Right now, people, there's military buildups going around the country. There's twenty-five to 30,000 troops in D.C. They put up fences. They put up barbed wire. They got tents all over the place. I'm like, I don't know what they're expecting. It's a virtual inauguration. But, I don't know, they're not virtual troops either. They're real. Okay, and they got guns. We have three days until the presidential inauguration. How you feeling? Good. You know, thinking about a Biden or probably more likely Harris presidency makes me a little sick to my stomach. When I hear the things they're planning, as soon as they get in, you know, you can't help but, I mean, we've had it really good in this country. We've had a lot of freedoms, a lot of blessings. I really don't believe there's going to be a Biden-Harris presidency. I really believe Trump's going to be our president for the next four years. But what if he's not? What if we end up with Biden-Harris? Look at what David said when he was afraid. <laughs> In Psalm 56, 3 and 4, he says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Now, people say, well, Christians shouldn't be afraid. Listen, we get afraid. Things happen and we like, I I don't want that to happen. I know God's sovereign. I still don't want some things to happen. I don't like them. Okay? You just have to bow to them. But David said, when I was afraid, I trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? This is David the giant killer. Fearlessly marched out there as a young boy when all everyone was hiding behind, you know, the wall because they were afraid of Goliath. You know, last week we saw in 1 Samuel 21 that David had his moments, okay? He was afraid of the king of Gath. And so what did he do? He 
pretend like he was crazy and he started scribbling on the wall and drooling on himself because fear was controlling him. Anxiety took over. He was afraid and in the midst of his fear, he had to say, I need to trust God. And David said, in God I have put my trust, I will not fear. So he's literally debating with himself, I don't need to be afraid, I can trust God. He's making a choice. David's declaration in the 23rd Psalm is, I will fear no evil. That's equivalent to, I will trust the Lord in the face of evil. I'll put my trust in Him. I have set Yahweh always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You know, to set Yahweh before you is to recognize His presence and His constant help. But this is something, people, we have to choose to do. Yahweh is always with us. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's no question of His presence with us, but we need to recognize His presence. We must set Him always before us. We must choose whether or not we're going to believe His promises of constant protection and care, or we're not going to. Trusting Yahweh is a matter of the will. You must choose to trust Him. But if you're going to choose to trust Him, you have to know who He is. We've been talking about this. You need to know that Yahweh, He's sovereign. He's wise. He's good. He's loving. And once you have the knowledge of Yahweh, then you have to make a choice whether you're going to believe it, you're going to trust Him, or you're going to follow your feelings. See, in the midst of adversity, we need to make a choice. Will I trust Yahweh or allow my feelings to cause me anxiety and grief? John Newton, author of the hymn Amazing Grace, he watched cancer slowly and painfully kill his wife over a period of many months. In recounting those days, Newton said this, I believe it was about two or three months before her death. When I was walking up and down the room, offering disjointed prayers from a heart torn with distress, that a thought suddenly struck me with unusual force to this effect. The promise of God must be true. Surely the Lord will help me if I am willing to be helped. It occurred to me that we are often led from an undue regard of our feelings to indulge that unprofitable grief which both our duty and our peace require us to resist to the utmost of our power. I instantly said aloud, Lord, I am helpless indeed in myself. But I hope, I am willing, without reserve, that thou shouldest help me. John Newton was helped in a remarkable way, and during those remaining months he tended to his usual duties as an Anglican minister, and he was able to say, Through the whole of my painful trial, I attended all my stated and occasional services as usual, and a stranger would scarcely have discovered, either by my words or looks, that I was in trouble. The long affliction did not prevent me from preaching a single sermon, and I preached on every day of her death. I likewise preached three times while she lay dead in the house, and after she was deposited in the vault, I preached her funeral service. So John Newton says he was helped by God because he chose to be helped. He realized it was his duty to resist, he says, to the utmost of our power, and in an inordinate amount of grief and distraction. 
He realized it was sinful to wallow in self-pity. Then he turned to Yahweh, not even asking, but only indicating his willingness to be helped. Then he said, I was not supported by by lively, sensible consolations, but by being able to realize to my mind some great and leading truths of the Word of God. The Spirit of God helped him by making needed truths of Scripture come alive to him. He chose to trust God. He turned to God in an attitude of dependence, and he was enabled to realize certain great truths from Scripture. David put it this way, I sought Yahweh, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fear. He delivered him from all his fears. David realized it was his responsibility to choose to trust God but also that he was dependent upon Yahweh for the ability to do so. You know, we're responsible to trust Him in times of adversity, but we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit to enable us to do so. I think we see this in the story we see in Mark 9 of the father who went to Yeshua because his son was possessed. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Yeshua asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Yeshua said to him, if you can, all things are possible for him, the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said to him, I believe. Help my unbelief. You ever been there? God, I trust you, but help me to trust you because I'm weak and I just, I'm not stable in this situation. We're just like that, Father. Our attitude should be, Yahweh, I'm looking to you for the strength I need to trust you in all situations because we're responsible to be dependent upon Him. The whole idea of trusting Yahweh is based upon the fact that He's absolutely trustworthy. To understand this, we need to be grounded in the truths of Scripture that Yahweh is sovereign. He's wise. He's good. He's loving. And as we learn these great truths, we'll be able to lay hold of His great promises for us. Now, you may be thinking, I trust Yahweh, but I really don't trust our government. And I'm afraid of what they're capable of. That's okay. (laughs) I feel your pain. You don't have to trust them. That's the point, because Yahweh controls all things, even the government. The Scriptures are clear that Yahweh rules over individuals and governments. Now, you know governments are made up of individuals. And Yahweh controls the individual, and He controls the government. We see Yahweh's rule over individuals all through the Scripture. I'm always amazed at people who want to fight against the sovereignty of God. He can't do that. He can't do that. What kind of God are you serving? It's not the God of the Bible. I mean, spend some time in there and you'll see how God controls everything. So let's look at a few of these things. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. You know, kings are absolute monarchs. They do whatever they want. You don't question them. You don't argue with them. You don't make appeals. You don't impeach them. Okay? They're kings. They don't like what you do. They kill you. All right? So this is the most powerful person at that time and he's saying it's you know god controls his heart he controls the thinking process 
He turns that thinking wherever he wants it to go. Controls the king's thinking. And people, this is demonstrated throughout Scripture. We see it in the account of Cyrus, king of Persia, when he's issued a proclamation to allow Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Ezra 1.1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Yahweh stirred it up. So that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. So this pagan king issues a proclamation because Yahweh moved his heart to do that. Now, if Yahweh controls the hearts of kings, certainly he controls the hearts of all men. We see in Scripture that Yahweh does, and in fact, he controls the hearts of everybody. When the Israelites finally left Egypt, after ten plagues, they didn't leave empty-handed. And listen, Egypt was decimated. They destroyed that place. And then when they left, they went to the people and said, Give us your gold and silver. Give us your precious stuff. They're like, you just wiped out our whole country. Now you want stuff from us? But the Egyptians gave them everything they asked for. Exodus 12, 35 and 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. <laughs> This is a sovereign work because, you know, they were not happy with these people at all. Like I said, they just ruined their country. So that, get that, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Now, here we see the Egyptians, they do something very strange and very unnatural. After these people had destroyed their country, or their God had anyway, but they were blaming these people. They voluntarily gave away all their wealth to the Israelite slaves. Why would they do that? They did it because Yahweh sovereignly moved them to do it. The Bible tells us Yahweh made the Egyptians favorable in the sight of them. God gave the Egyptians a desire to give it away. They acted freely of their own will. But they did it because Yahweh moved them to do it. You know, Yahweh's sovereign control is not mechanical. It's not that the Egyptians didn't want to give the Israelites their money and their stuff, but they just couldn't help themselves. They gave it away willingly. Because God moved them to do that. (coughs) Yahweh usually works His sovereign plan through ordinary circumstances. Not supernatural, not miraculous, through ordinary circumstances. He uses means most often to accomplish his ends. And this is seen very clearly in the book of Esther. And, and, and I would just encourage you, read the whole book in one sitting. Don't break it up because you just you miss the picture. You've got to read it all and you, just, you stand there amazed and you'll be smiling as you read it. You're grinning because you know what's happening, Okay. As you read Esther, you see the hand of God in every circumstances. He was sovereignly at work through ordinary circumstances in the time of Esther, as he was through the miracles in the time of Moses. The book of Esther is set during the era when the Persians had ruled Judah in the reign of King Xerxes. The Hebrew is Ahasuerus. The interesting thing about this book never mentions God. 
The Jews became subject of the Persian Empire when Cyrus the Great, who was the king of Media and Persia, conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. because Babylon had taken over Judah earlier. And many were deported to Babylon as captives and they remained there. The NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, which I highly recommend, it's just it's excellent if you want to get some background to the Bible as you're reading. It says this, Not only is Esther the only biblical book that contains no reference to God, the only book in the Bible, it also contains no prayers, sacrifices, or any other religious observance. To say that this absence is unusual would be an understatement. Almost all ancient Near Eastern literature is permeated with religious language. The lack of religious reference in the book of Esther is highly remarkable and almost certainly intentional. Perhaps there is some deliberate irony intended, for God seems to lurk everywhere in the background of this book. It is the unlikely coincidence and remarkable deliverance that make this story so entertaining. It is entertaining. Like I said, and it's just, you read it, you got to grin. Let's look at the book of Esther and see how God sovereignly moves to protect His people. And that's what I want you to understand here. These Jews, they're His people. He protects them. It's, Esther's the story of an orphan Jewish girl who became queen of Persia and delivered her people with the help of her faithful uncle. The narrative itself teaches the story without mentioning Yahweh or Elohim or giving every, any prophetic explanations. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. Now, Ahasuerus is better known by his Greek name, Xerxes I. He ruled the Persian Empire for 21 years, from 485 to 465 B.C. He is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible in Ezra 4.6 and Daniel 9.1. Judah was one of the provinces over which this king ruled. Now, the king is having a six-month party with his friends. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, you've got to get old with this. You know, he's just having a party because he's a king and he can do that. And at the last week when the king is feeling good from wine, he's had a little too much to drink, he sent his chamberlains to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. He wanted to show off Queen Vashti, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. Oh, not good. Remember, this is a king, okay? And he doesn't care about the media. He's not worrying about what anybody will say about him if he does anything. He has absolute power. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Her action here is a breach of etiquette. This king is used to getting whatever he wants whenever he wanted it. So why did she refuse to come when he called her? Well, Jewish tradition holds that Vashti had been ordered to appear naked before the king. That's tradition. But the tradition, it really doesn't have any historical support. The text doesn't tell us why she refuses to come. But it's part of the story that has to, be, that has to happen. As we read, we see that God was removing her so that Esther could take her place. Now, the king has Vashti put away because of this, because the other people, it's interesting, his counselors tell him, hey, if this gets out, none of our wives are going to obey us. 
Okay, you can't let this happen, man. We got to clamp down on this. So he gets rid of her and he starts to search for a new, a new queen. All right. Out of all the women brought before him, he chooses Esther. And the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashtai. So Esther was an orphan who was raised by Mordecai, her uncle, and they were both Jews. But Mordecai had asked Esther not to tell or let her kindred be known. Don't tell anyone you're a Jew, just keep that to yourself. Well, Mordecai had overheard a plot that a couple people were making to kill the king. And so he goes to Esther and he tells her, and she told the king about it. Esther 2.23, When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. All right, so this was recorded. They wrote it down. Write this down. We're killing these guys because of this. So what Mordecai had done, it's written down. Now, the king had promoted a man named Haman to the number two spot in his kingdom. And Haman came to hate Mordecai, Esther's uncle. Esther 3.2 says, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, if you're the number two man in the kingdom and people are supposed to bow to you, what happens when they don't? Your pride just gets so irritated. You know, who do you think you are not bowing down to me? All the text tells us is that Mordecai would not bow because he was a Jew. 3-4 says that. Again, the NIV, Cultural Background Study Bible, says, Ancient Near Eastern peoples often knelt before one another as a sign of respect. Israelites generally had no qualms with such demonstrations. And he lists some scriptures here. Given that prostration was such a common sign of respect, Mordecai's refusal to kneel down or pay Haman honor is, is a mystery. They just, why is this? You know, in 1 Samuel 20, 41, David bows to pay homage to Jonathan. So it's not like, well, he's a Jew, he can't do that. No, he just, for some reason, doesn't do it. And you're like, why? It's part of the story. Okay? <laughs> It's part of the story. Esther 3, 5, and 6 says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Yes, I bet he was. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So, he wants to destroy them all. You won't bow, you're a Jew, I'll kill all Jews. He wants his revenge, but he doesn't want to make it look like it's personal. So, I'll kill all the Jews instead. Well, that's a great plan. So, we begin to plot this scheme to uh, get rid of all the Jews. So, Haman goes to the king with a plan to destroy all the Jews in the kingdom because they don't obey his laws. And the king agrees to the plan, and the letters are signed and sent throughout the kingdom. We're going to kill all the Jews on this certain date. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day 
the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to plunder their goods. All right, this is the king's plan, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews. Now, God could have supernaturally stopped this murderous plot. Could have had Haman drop dead on his way in to make the plot. He could have, but he didn't. What God did do was work through natural means to save his people. Mordecai hears the plan and he tells Esther, asking her to go to the king and intercede on behalf of the Jews. In the meantime, Haman builds a gallows to hang Mordecai on. So I'm getting rid of this guy. So he gets this gallows built and he's ready to kill him. In Esther chapter 6, reveals in a remarkable way how God sovereignly uses the most ordinary circumstances to accomplish his purpose. On that night, which night? The night that Haman made the gallows to hang Mordecai on. He was going to hang him that, mor- that morning, all right? So that night, on that night, the king can't sleep. It's just weird coincidence, okay? He can't sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorial deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found out, written, how that Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Tiresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So, just a coincidence that the king can't sleep that night. Okay? And it's just a coincidence that he asked, bring the book of the Chronicles and read to me. Maybe he felt that'd be so boring, I'll fall right to sleep, okay? Why didn't he ask, bring some musicians in here and play some soft, soothing music, help me sleep? Was it just an accident that the reader happened to read from the particular section of the book where Mordecai's actions are recorded? I mean, a lot of coincidences here. Was it just a coincidence that it happened on the very night that Mordecai had built, had built these gallows, was going to hang them on? Haman had built the gallows to hang Mordecai on? It's the same time. Why had not Mordecai been rewarded before this? How come they just ignored it when it happened, didn't do anything for him? Let's read on. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on a gallows that he had prepared for him. I love, this is just so cool, people, okay? He's coming in because, can I, can I get Haman? Can I hang the guy? And the young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. All right, remember he's there because he wants to have Mordecai hung on the gallows. And the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Well, who would the king delight to honor more than me? He has no problem with low self-esteem or anything, you know. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let the royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes And the horses be handed over to one who has the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse 
through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Can you imagine what Haman felt like at that moment? I mean, yeah, talk about it. He says, leave out nothing that you mention. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him. Do it. Go ahead and do it for the Jew. Yeah, that's right. He led him to the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights on. He's proclaiming this. As he, you know, I can't even fathom how this guy must have felt. Why did Haman show up at that moment to ask the king's permission to hang Mordecai? He just heard about what what Mordecai had done for him, and at that moment he shows up. You know, the answer to all these questions was that God was sovereignly orchestrating the events of that night to save his people. Esther goes to the king and tells him she's a Jew. And she tells him of Haman's wicked plan to destroy all the Jews. So Haman is hanged on his own gallows. He built them, he gets hung on them. Mordecai is promoted to the number two spot in the kingdom, and the king sent out an order stopping the slaughter of all the Jews. And then in 8, 16, and 17, it says, And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, where the king's command and the edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the people of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Because we see that Yahweh was sovereignly working out the events in Esther for the good of His people, are we justified in concluding that Yahweh always orchestrates the events of our life to fulfill His purpose? I mean, I'd like to think, and the people of America had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and every city where the proclamation was made that Trump rules for four more years. <laughs> but, but are we right to think that, well, listen, God is always in control. We know that, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. The sovereign God is in control of all events that happen in our lives. That should give us tremendous comfort when we understand the very powerful truth that He loves us. Now, many Christians will accept the fact that God is sovereign over nature. That's, you know, kind of impersonal. He can do that. Sovereign over circumstances. But many people reject the sovereignty of God over decisions and actions of people. Believer, if God's not sovereign in the decisions and actions of other people as they affect us, there's a whole major area of our lives where we can't trust God. where we are left to fend for ourselves. But the Scripture clearly teaches that Yahweh is sovereign over the people and He moves them to accomplish His purpose. The rulers in Babylon granted Daniel's request because God moved their hearts. Daniel 1, 8 and 9. And Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. They're captives. They're brought in the land. They come before him with this food. Here's the food you're going to eat. And he says, I can't eat that or with the wine that they drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. 
Why did the eunuchs agree to this? Because God gave them favor. He brought Daniel into favor with them so they would grant the request. So Yahweh gives us favor with our enemies. I think this is clearly demonstrated in Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I love this verse. I love this. This verse is telling us, people, the only person you have to worry about pleasing is Yahweh. You don't have to bow down and try to please all these people you know, to get in their favor. You have to please Yahweh. You have to do what He has called you to do. You have to be the person He's called you to be. And He will make even your enemies to be at peace with you. Yahweh makes our enemies at peace because He changes their hearts. He also restrains people from decisions or actions that would hurt us. Remember, Abraham lied about his wife Sarah. So he said, tell him you're my sister. Okay? You're so hot, you know, I'm afraid to take you anywhere, but you just tell them you're my sister so they don't kill me. Well, as a result, Abimelech took Sarah to be his wife. These king, kings do that. They do whatever, again, they do whatever they want, okay? But God keeps Abimelech from touching her, all right? Genesis 20, verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Was it that Abimelech tried to sleep with Sarah, but some mysteriously power held him back? He's like, I can't get in the room. What is wrong with, you know, what's going on here? No. He was physically able to do what he wanted to do. Abimelech had no consciousness that the Lord was restraining him, but he was. Yahweh moved in the hearts of His people to accomplish His will. And our first response to this truth should be one of trust. Because our careers, our destiny, are in His hands. Not the hands of bosses. Not the hands of commanding officers or politicians. Thank God. Or professors or coaches and all other people, humanly speaking, are in a position to affect our futures. No one can harm or jeopardize our future apart from the sovereign will of Yahweh. So we can trust our future to Him. Completely. Because Yahweh is sovereign over the hearts of men, doesn't that mean that things will always turn out as we'd like them to? No. No, not at all. All things work together for good, but we we may not like how they turn out. Okay? I've told you before, I was paralyzed for a time from the neck down. I didn't enjoy that. Because the fact is, I didn't know it was ever going to go away. So I'm like, okay. And there was a few days of depression there, and then I had to go like David and start going over my theology and thinking who God was and, you know, okay, God, if this is what you want. God was trying to get my attention, all right? And when I realized it, I said, (laughs) okay, I'll do what you want me to do. I got the point. You know, God can play pretty rough, you know, when he needs to. So, but I look back on that time now and I think of it so fondly because God got a hold of my heart during that time. He showed me very clearly what he wanted me to do and he, he just made it so there were, I wasn't going to argue with him. Okay? And we need to trust him in the bad times as well as the good. He plans them all. I know we don't like bad times. We like only good times. But there, He works through us, through our lives in bad times. Now, 
In Acts 12, we read about two apostles, James and Peter. They had very different events happen to them. James is put to death, and Peter is miraculously set free from prison. Two apostles. Put yourself in the shoes of James's wife and then Peter's. One is grieving over the murder of her husband, the other rejoices over the miraculous deliverance of hers. Peter's wife rejoices over the sovereignty of God. But what does James' wife do? Was God any less sovereign in the death of James than he was in the deliverance of Peter? Is our God sovereign only in the good circumstances of our life? No, God is in control of both good and bad circumstances. He's in control of the bad circumstances, directing them to His glory and our good. You say, I don't understand it. You're not God. Don't try. Just accept that He's God. He's a lot smarter, a lot bigger than we are. James' wife must trust God and in His sovereign control over her life and the death of her husband. In the midst of her heartache and grief, she may respond with Yahweh. I know you were in control of this dreadful event. I don't know why you allowed this to happen. Help me to trust you. We honor Yahweh by choosing to trust Him when we don't understand what He's doing. You know, when everything's going away, I say, God, I really trust you. He's like, no kidding. You got everything you want. Everything's going good. When your world falls apart and you stand there and you say, though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. That brings glory and honor to God, okay? He's not only sovereign over individuals. He is sovereign over the nations, who controls them, how, what the things they're doing, the wars that are happening. The governing authorities are not puppets with no will of their own. They make choices. They do exactly what they want to do, but in doing them, they carry out the sovereign will of God. In Acts 2, 27-28, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod and Pilate, the Jews, the Romans, they did exactly what God wanted them to do. They put His Son to death. That was the plan. John Newton, again, writes this. The kings of the earth are continually disturbing the world with their schemes of ambition. (laughs) They expect to carry everything before them and have seldom a higher end in view than the gratification of their own passions. Wow. He sure understood kings and rulers, didn't he? But in all they do, they are but servants of this great king and lord and fulfill his purposes as the instruments he employs to inflict prescribed punishment upon transgressors against him, or to open a way for the spread of his gospel. They had one thing in view. He had another. We know that Yahweh rules over all authorities because the Bible tells us He does. And thus we see the events reported in our news feed as the sovereign outworkings of our great God. And no matter what happens to our nation... We can trust God. I think we're on the brink right now as a nation, going in two very different directions. 
You know, if Trump is put in office, I think you're going to see amazing things. You're going to be, we're going to be blessed beyond measure. But if it goes the other way, we're going to face tribulation and trials like they make it no, you know, they don't try to hide the fact that they hate Christians. Okay? They don't try to hide that fact at all. And when you got the media on your side and the government working together, I mean, there's, they can do whatever they want to do within God's sovereign control, okay? God appoints the good and the powerful rulers as well as the weak and the foolish rulers. God appoints the Bill Clintons and the Obamas just as well as the Ronald Reagans and the Donald Trumps. Daniel 4.17 The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. You got that. He rules in the kingdom of men. Watch. And he gives it to whom he will. And he sets over it the lowest of men. Wow. He not only determines who will rule, he determines the time of their ruling. Isaiah 40, 23 and 24 says, Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. He not only determines who governs and how long they govern, he rules in the decisions that they make. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from Yahweh. The sovereign God controls the decisions of our authorities for His glory, for our good. Even their bad, stupid decisions are under God's control. Absalom chose to follow Hushai's bad advice against Ahithophel's good advice. Why? Because God wanted him to. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Why did they do that? For Yahweh had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that Yahweh might bring them upon Absalom. Absalom disregarded the good advice because Yahweh caused him to do so. A fatal choice in his life. Yahweh works in the hearts and the minds of the rulers and the authorities to accomplish His sovereign purpose. And we need to learn to trust God is working in and through our authorities. Scripture also teaches that Yahweh rules in the victories and defeats between nations on the battlefield. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to Yahweh. That's where the strength is. 1 Kings 20, 28. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says Yahweh, Because the Syrians have said, Yahweh is the God of the hills, He is not the God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. So they said, oh, their gods were territorial. Oh, that God is the hills. We'll fight in the valleys. We'll win. Because he, he, God can't come in the valleys. And God says, you got me confused with the other gods. I'm, I'm ruling the whole world. Okay? Therefore, I'll give all this great multitude into your hands. 1 Kings 20, 28 and 29. 
And they encamped opposite one another seven days. And on the seventh day the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. Why? Because God said, I'm going to let you win. The battle's yours. You know, God, sometimes Israel won battles, sometimes they lost them, depending on, you know, where they were at. I just, when I'm reading through the Kings and the Chronicles, I get, I guess I get a little upset because I see Yahweh giving David battle plans. You know, no, go around this way, set an ambush here, do, and I'm thinking, how cool would that have been? I mean, how would you feel as a going into battle knowing that God's telling you what to do and how to do it? Oh, sometimes I wish he'd just speak to me like that. <laughs> 2 Kings 5.1 Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master in high favor because by him Yahweh had given victory to Syria. Interesting, a pagan general, but God had given him victory. Had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he is a leper. So... Here's this leper, Naaman, a pagan man. It says, by him, Yahweh had given victory to Syria. God controls what's happening. 2 Chronicles 13, 14 through 16. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front and behind. And they cried to Yahweh. And the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout. And when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abishai and Judah. And the men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. People, America is without a doubt the most powerful nation in the world today. Not only strength-wise, but we export the gospel to many nations. America is a light. It's a, it's a, you know, have you seen on the news, if they ever report anything that's true, you see people in other countries, you know, with American flags and, you know, they're for America because they like what we have here. They don't have it. And they're like, yes, America, it's just such a beacon. It's a light. But we're not to trust in our nation's military. We're not to trust in the strength we have here as, as you know, an army. Our trust is to be in Yahweh. Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We will trust in the name of Yahweh our God. You know, America's great because Yahweh, using President Trump, made it great. And if we continue to seek His face and turn to Him, I think He'll keep America great. That's my prayer. That's my hope. I look at our government and I think it is so sick. It is so corrupt. Destroy it, Lord. Wipe it out. I'm constantly praying in precatory prayers. Wipe these people out, Lord. We don't, we don't need that government, okay? We would be great without them, okay? They do us more harm than good, all right? So that's my prayer. In Isaiah 5, God speaks through the prophet, and he tells of the forthcoming invasion of the Assyrian army. And notice what he says, Isaiah 5, 26. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles. None slumbers nor sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. In this last statement, we see the absoluteness of God's sovereignty. It covers every de- detail. Nothing's left to chance. Yahweh says that even a strap on their sandals won't be broken. Why is that important? If you don't have good footing, you can't fight. God said, don't worry, your sandals are not going to break. You, you go right ahead. 
Believers, if we understand Yahweh's sovereignty, we can trust Him in the midst of the worst possible circumstances. Could our country be turned over to a Biden-Harris presidency? Maybe. It could, if the deep state has its way. But if it does, it's the sovereign control of God that made that happen. And it's not the conniving, cheating acts of communist Democrats. God's behind it. That's what He wants. The communist Democrats who are in bed with China may plan to destroy the United States of America. They want to. But apart from the sovereign will of Yahweh, they can't do anything. They can't do anything. We may not trust our government to make proper decisions concerning our nation, and we're foolish if we do, okay? But we can trust our God who controls the decisions of kings. Yahweh rules over our nation and all nations. He's in control of authorities and all their decisions are in His hand, and He calls us to trust Him. What a comfort. What a joy to know that our nation is not run by a cheating, lying, murdering murdering government, but by a sovereign God. You say, but why would He let those people? I don't know. He has plans to teach us things. You know, I know that the early church literally flourished because of persecution, not prosperity. That kind of grieves me to say because I'm, I kind of like prosperity. But then I go back and forth and I say, well, you know, God has promised prosperity if we are faithful to Him. So we got that, you know, Deuteronomy 28, blessings and cursings. We obey, God blesses. And a blessed land and freedom and all, that's, that's the blessing of God that He promised Israel. And we are the new Israel of God. So I don't know which way this is going to go, people, but I do know this. Our God reigns. And man, I tell you, <laughs> I rest in that, okay? Because there's nothing we can do but trust Him, rest in His sovereign care for our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your Word of God is so clear, Lord, on so many issues. But the Word of God lifts You so highly as the sovereign, reigning Lord of all. Help us to recognize that, and no matter what situation we're in, Lord, to bring glory to You. May You be lifted up by us. May we, Your image bearers, portray to the world around us the God of the Bible. Lord, thank You for Your grace in our lives. Thank You for all that we have. Thank You for the freedoms we have. Lord, I pray You would protect those freedoms. I pray You would enhance those freedoms. I pray for our government right now as it's in turmoil, Lord. I pray You would put down these evil People in government who care nothing but for themselves. These people who just, they have nothing but evil, Lord, intentions. I pray you would smite them. I pray you would wipe them out. I pray you'd give us people, Lord, who love you, who stand for justice and righteousness. Amen. Questions? Comments? Okay. David was in an intimate relationship with God and he was giving David guidance on so many things. And I know the answer to this, but why did he let David send with Bathsheba? 
you know, when, when it comes to why God does things, I don't know he's God. So, you know, I, I certainly don't begin to understand the mind of God. You know, but David definitely was humbled through the whole experience. You know, and God judged him. And, and we look at that story now and we say, you think you can sin and get away with it? He told David fourfold out of your own household. I mean, you look at what happened to David after that because of his sin. And it should kind of make us take a step back and tremble a little bit, okay? Fourfold out of your own household. And just, that's exactly what happened because of his sin. Why does God let anyone sin? He doesn't have He could prevent any of us from sinning, but this is his plan. And, uh, you know, I, I think we... We go through a lot of difficult times to help us to understand who he is and you know providence is, has a way of teaching us how well, we submit to it. Through Bathsheba King Solomon. And so. Solomon. They say he was so smart. I don't see that. <laughs> how dumb are you to have a thousand wives? Okay? Who led his heart away from God. You know, and that's the thing. The Bible said that. You know, don't multiply horses, don't multiply wives. He didn't listen to it. His wives let his heart away. It's, it's you know, it's sad. But again, these stories show us, you know, ever the grace of God go on. Well, you got the wisest man in the world, so how else can anybody else think they could do the same? Or better? <clears throat> Amen.